Steve and Kevin review Kamigawa Neon Dynasty for Vintage on episode 104 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 104 of So Many Insane Plays, our Kamigawa Neon Dynasty review. I'm Kevin Crone with Steven Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. We're getting back into the swing of regular things, and what better way to do it than with a set review, something we haven't done for a little while. But first and foremost, do you have any announcements for our audience? Sadly, no. (laughs) No. I'm hoping (laughs) that we will get an Eternal Weekend announcement this year, although maybe that's an unrealistic expectation. But given um, given the recent announcement that they're sort of rebooting and reinvigorating paper tabletop magic... The Pro Tour and all the ancillary stuff, maybe I've just been naively optimistic that we'll see something for <laughs> Eternals, Eternal formats as well. Well, I believe that it will happen. I, I really do. At the same time, the Card King, not Card Kingdom, um, Card Titan and Nick Koss have had challenges in the past in terms of the timeliness and the arranging of Eternal Weekend. Uh, and it, the event has been derided, I think, occasionally in the past for how close to its occurrence it was announced and so that means that we can never really be totally sure but that said the combination of pandemic and the challenges in planning the event like that tell me that i i still don't think we're going to have one in 2022 i have a feeling yeah that we're going to get one for the first return to ew is probably going to be in 23 so that will be how many years without a a paper eternal weekend It'll be, well, three years missing, right? 19 through 22. Sad. No, that's that's four years, isn't it? Well, didn't that's we, a four we year had gap. one in 19, right? Was that the last one? That's funny how, how easy it is to forget. I I thought 19 being the first full-on year of pandemic didn't happen. No, no, no. The pandemic started in March of 2020. Okay. Well, then either way, three years missing, and it is it is definitely a shame. I'm, I could be wrong, right? Like, uh, perhaps Nick has been quite aggressive and or partnering with Watsi on their policies uh, for larger tournaments, in-person tournaments. And so I think it's certainly en- happening on their side. Yeah, I think there's enormous pent-up demand. And I don't think you should wait <laughs> a year, right? I mean, Well, the demand, no doubt. Absolutely. People are, are clamoring. And I'm, I'm definitely one of them. Me too. So this episode is a return to form for us from a set review standpoint. Obviously, we had a, our last few were delayed, and then we skipped a few. We don't have a report card as we normally would. The sets in between our big alpha review and our years in review include Dungeons and Dragons, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, and Innistrad's both Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow. We don't have reviews to go back and report ourselves on on those sets. And so at this point, we really just have to kind of move forward and treat this as a new starting point for the new year. Steve, do you have any thoughts, though, or, you know, your experience or commentary on recent sets and how they've impacted Vintage? 
Uh, I don't think I could give a summation to that. I mean, we we've done the set. We've done the year in review where we reviewed what were the most impactful. And yeah, these were not they. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I, I don't think I could I could beneficially or advantageously add to I think what what we said in our in our year in review our twenty. Yeah. Well, that's fair. I will note a recent uptick in the appearance of the card. I was going to say deranged hermit, but that's not the right card. Um, the the two drop that you can sack to to Manalika spell what is the name of that creature. Malevolent hermit is the one I'm thinking of, where it you can sacrifice it to Manalika non creature spell, and then it has disturb for three, where it comes back as a, a non creature spells you control can't be countered creature, which is interesting. I've seen a couple appearances of that, which is from Midnight Hunt. But otherwise, I would argue that these sets, well, for the reasons you stated with regard to our set review, are pretty, pretty non-interesting for recent events. It's, I mean, it's hard to say whether they are weak or whether they've just been massively overshadowed by Ragavan and Urza Saga. Yeah, that's a good point. Modern Horizons has that effect on things. And also, um, sets, you know from having done this for a decade or more now, that sets... Um, tend to have themes that resonate with vintage or don't and sets like the innistrad sets were had had a lot of combat focus a lot of combat type mechanics things like never good for vintage yeah things like day night especially very weak for vintage and so those things were just destined to not have that focus Uh, the converse is sets that tend to have artifact focuses which Kamigawa has a little bit of. Very good for vintage, yeah. And other things like alternate costs, mana reduction, you know, those kind of mechanics always play much better in vintage. And we're going to see a little bit of that kind of theme here in this review for Kamigawa. So I think we should just forge ahead and begin our review for Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Let's do it. We like to start by talking about mechanics for new sets, and Kamigawa has a few returning hits and a few new ones. Though the new ones are, I would argue, they fall under the heading of not terribly interesting for Vintage. Chief among them is the reconfigure mechanic, which is really just a recapitulation of equip. Reconfigure is a more flexible version of equip in that you can use it to, it, it appears on creatures, you can use it to turn the creature into an equipment style attachment and have some benefit to the equipped creature. And you can use the reconfigure to unequip effectively, which is something that the equip mechanic can't do. And so that's why they had to create a new variant of it. That's really the only meaningful difference between equip and reconfigure is that you can use reconfigure to unattach yourself. As such, there's, you know, there's very little room for equipment to be viable in Vintage. I would argue that the reconfigure approach makes it more likely because that means the creature, which this comes on, can stand alone. But they didn't push the envelope terribly hard on reconfigure in this set, so we don't have a Vintage viable one. But we should look out for that. What's the name Another- of the... Um- What's the name of the creature? Is it Batter Skull that has a germ? It's basically equipment that comes attached with the creature. <laughs> That's right. Living Weapon is the mechanic you're yes, referring to. Yeah. It's the case for Batter Skull and for Nettle Sift, 
to yes that's equipment seen quite a bit of vintage play and and, uh, yeah and workshop decks yeah and there's your artifact and in that case enchantment sub theme there right nettle cyst was destined to have more power and vintage when we have an artifact based mana base what set was nettle cyst from nettle cyst was recent that was from modern horizons 2 and for those who <clears throat> might not remember nettle cyst is just the intersection of cranial plating with living weapon it costs one more than cranial plating comes with a living weapon which means it's really a creature out of the gate and it also counts artifacts and enchantments which doesn't come up terribly often in vintage but is a little more relevant across other formats anyway the other <laughs> creature slash combat kind of mechanic that came out in kamigawa is modified modified simply refers to a subset of changes or, or effects that can be on a creature that are grouped into the modified subheading. It's kind of like the old, the, the addition of historic <laughs> back in Dominaria, where equipment, auras, and counters on creatures count as being modified. And then a number of cards look for whether or not you control a creature that's modified and give you some benefit for it. Unfortunately, unlike historic, which had lots of fun overlap existing with vintage, modified is kind of the opposite. Equipment, okay, there's a, a scant amount of that, but auras and or counters on your creatures, pretty rare in Vintage, and so Modified was destined to not have much of an impact. Another new mechanic, which is really the, again, the intersection of two things are the flip sagas. Those are, there's multiple cycles of sagas in the set that are sagas in the normal sense. They have chapters, one, two, three usually, and then when they get to the end of their chapters, they flip over and transform into some other card, usually a creature. Now, these are things that, again, not destined for strong impact in Vintage because sagas tend to be prolonged impact over time, and that's not synergistic with most Vintage gameplay or, or deck strategies. And we're going to talk about one of them because I think it's noteworthy, but in general, sagas were not destined to have a splash in Vintage because the nominal impact when they come into play is so light. There is one effect, though, that's not new for Kamigawa, but newly implemented in a strong way, and that is Channel. Channel has been brought to bear in a number of ways in Kamigawa, but very interestingly in the rare land cycle mm -hmm. <laughs> headlined by Boseju, who endures, which we will definitely be reviewing. Channel is, I think, the sort of effect that aggressively costed definitely does have overlap and synergy with Vintage because it provides the flexibility to convert mana sources into actionable spells, which is something that Vintage um, prizes very highly. Anything that allows you to shave mana sources to get um, action out of all of your cards is worth considering, and we're going to talk about a couple of them. Steve, any thoughts before we dive into the specific cards? No, that was an excellent overview of the mechanics. Thank you. Let's dive in then with one of the headliners, aforementioned Boseju, who endures. This is a legendary land. Not notably, no cards in this cycle come into play tapped, so this just comes in untapped and taps for green. It has channel 1G, discard Boseju, destroy target artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land an opponent controls, 
That player may search their library for a land card with a basic land type, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. Notably, this ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control, which is a fun addition and nod to the Kamigawa environment being so rife with legendary creatures. Steve, this is one of the headliners of the whole set for multiple. It's a multi-format all-star, and <laughs> there's no denying that we're doing this review here at the beginning of April, and we already have results for several of these cards. I consider this card to immediately be a staple in some archetypes, but I think its stapleness is still in flux. You know, it's not yeah. firmly defined. It's just obviously good enough to make the cut in a number of contexts, and I think that's awesome. I have... I had a pretty powerful visceral reaction to seeing this card for the first time. I think I overestimated it a little bit, but that's mostly just because I was so excited by its combination of power and flexibility. Do you have thoughts about how this card strikes you when you see it just at face value? Does it make you excited? Does it oh, yeah. immediately seem to you like it? it you just want to play it? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, the, the, I mean, I had a very visceral reaction. I was like, wow, that's the kind of... That along, it's it, it. I remember years ago, Chapin wrote a vintage article for Star City Games where he was talking about how if you want to rebalance the color pie, if you want to make things interesting, give green some really powerful free spells that are anti artifact. And we mm. kind of got that with Force of Vigor. And this is like right in the in that vein, right? It's in that vein of like, wow, here's a powerful green card. And I realize it's mm -hmm. not technically green, it's a land, but it, it's part of the green color pie. Um, mm -hmm. this, this is something, imagine if, imagine if this had been printed where Force of Vigor was printed and Force Ooh. of Vigor was printed now. I mean, it would have <laughs> immensely powered up the bug decks, those sorts of decks, right? Dramatically weakened. Um, I think Force of Vigor did actually help weaken shops, but yeah, there's so much going for this. First of all, in vintage, nothing beats uncounterable and or free spells. Now, Force of Vigor is in the free category, along with like Force of Will and Moxen, etc., etc. But this is anything that, you know, this the card that in my mind I remember is, and I don't know why I have mentally anchored in, in, <laughs> my, in my brain this sort of effect, but the card that I mentally anchored is Fairy Macabre. Be oh sure. Because Fairy Macabre was, I think, like a. It's not technically a channel spell because I don't think the channel. At that point, did the did the channel mechanic exist as such? It did, and Fairy Macabre is notable in that it doesn't have it. Why? Which is funny. Why did? Why would that be? be just because the set didn't have channel. Fairy, Ma Fairy so Macabre came out in Shattermore in two thousand eight, by the way. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember what set channel started in. I don't have that off the top of my head, but I'll look it up. Channel, I remember famously in <laughs> in Type 4. You remember? <laughs> for, it came out in Saviors of Kamigawa, I think might be the original um, channel, because we got Arashi and Jawari, you know, the, the Hurricane and... and um, Which set? You said Saviors and, of Kamigawa? Yeah, Saviors. That, was that before or after Shadowmore? I, I want to think that was probably after Shadowmore by a couple of years. You know, I think I think you might be right. Yes. That that timeline is not not perfectly rooted in my mind. But regardless, Channel is a callback to the original Kamigawa. But Fairy Macabre notably hasn't been eroded to have Channel. And 
they do they tend to shy away from doing that even though no. it's completely logical to do so just because they want certain set mechanics to be identified with their those sets so i am mistaken so, sorry i'm mistaken i went back and i actually have opened my helpful timeline of vintage on eternal central <laughs> saviors of kamigawa was released on on it, it was released on june 20th 2005 and Shadowmore comes out in 2008 so okay if channels part I, I, of saviors then you said saviors of kamigawa saviors yeah yeah i definitely remember having the sensation that fairy macabre should have had channel yeah. it's um i mean but it's a common sensation because wizards generally has this policy of if the mechanic in question is aligned to a plane or a set they want they don't necessarily bring it up in other right. sets to, to right. blur those lines, even though it's mechanically transparent. Right. And also, yeah. I mean, so so just to focus on the mechanic for a moment, the two key parts to channel are you pay mana and then you discard the spell you're channeling. So it's a little bit like, it's like when you cycle something, the card you're cycling goes to the graveyard. Channel is a little bit like that. Yeah. It, it has an effect. And cycling can create an effect. It's just you don't draw, <laughs> right? So there's like all <laughs> kinds of cycle cards where like, Oh yeah, it deals dam like a point of damage or something when you cycle. So, um, but fairy macabre is is you discard. You, it, there's no mana as part of the cost. Instead, it's remove two cards from your graveyard, exile two cards from your graveyard. So, are there any channel cards that do not have mana costs that are just like fairy macabre in that regard? Or, or is in other words, is the structure or design of the channel mechanic? either explicitly or implicitly require mana expense or payment? I would argue, yeah, I would argue that it is implicit, but it that... Theoretically. Fair, yeah, Fakab would be the only card, I think, that has a zero channel cost in terms of channel. mana. Got it. Yeah. I mean, the mechanic is structured such that it could be channel dash zero and it would function just fine. So it's not... Yeah, that's why I say it's implicit, it's just because they've only ever done it that way. You could do the zero if you wanted to make it in a complete accordance with other channel cards. Yeah, <laughs> That's absolutely correct. And <laughs> Boseju, for example, could have been written that way. It could be channel dash zero, and it would function just fine. So the other thing, this is not a substantive comment on the card, but <laughs> I'm forever going to be confused when people talk about Boseju now, because I'm going to, in my mind, I'm going to be like, which one are you talking about? <laughs> because... <laughs> To me, Baseju who shelters all is the primary Baseju. You know, it was part of the old like gifts oh, yeah. control slaver battle for a while. Um, well, definitely and, a and staple in Type Four. <laughs> yeah, Type Four All Stars, which is what the still thing. I'm, the thing I'm always going to associate Baseju who shelters all with. Um, so I, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's not like in Vintage the original Baseju is uh, a common appearance, non-zero, of course. But these days, there's pretty much no ambiguity. But it's funny for us old old timers who are gonna have that confusion still. Yep. <laughs> um, what else? So this card reminded me of like something that Nat Mose would have inserted into the file. Like you know, it was like <laughs> his push for anti artifact, good vintage playables, especially those with like a green cost. I think that you know, of course, the the place that this card gets tripped up is that. It's free. It's 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 uncounterable, but it's not free. And yeah. so I wonder if that like, you know, force of vigor. Just I mean, we got we had this this funnel, or I don't know if you want to call it a slide into ever more efficient artifact destruction. 
an artifact mm-hmm. enchantment destruction, right? Where it went from, I mean, just this is going way back, but we kind of went from disenchant to naturalize. And that was viewed as more efficient because green was a better color. <laughs> so it wasn't technically more efficient. <laughs> And yeah. then we, we went to things like Oxidize, which was like, whoa. And then Shattering Spree, it was like, whoa. And then we got Nature's Claim. It was like, whoa. And then it was Fragmentize, <laughs> which was funny because it took us back full circle. And Fragmentize was actually better because white was a better color because of Monastery Mentor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> white actually had surged over green as the better tertiary color or fourth color in vintage. And, and then we get to the uber-efficient Force of Vigor, which is, I mean, ostensibly a two for two, but really is just, you know, being able to take out like two spheres effects is, or like chalice and stuff like that, just, or an oath is just like, you know, massively disruptive, massively powerful, especially when we saw like the er rise of like paradoxical outcome, (laughs) you know, it's like incredible. Um, And I just feel like if this had come out five years ago, this would be a stunning revelation. Yeah. But coming in the in the like, was it now three year? What? what uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, Modern Horizons one came out in 2019. Now three years after Modern Horizons, this is like to us old timers, it's like a shocking development, which I think explains the visceral reaction you had. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's been. I don't think it's um, overall utility matches the the kind of. Uh, the shock that that some that we have upon reading this card. <laughs> I think that's really well put, and it definitely does help reconcile my my reaction to the reality of this card. Because while I I said earlier, I do believe I genuinely believe this card is a staple in some archetypes, and probably will be for a while. The the, the simple truth is is it's not a given that any deck that can play green should play this card or will. And I think it really is basically a role player in certain archetypes. And finding exactly where that line is and what, what decks it's really appropriate for is going to be the fun of seeing the future of this card. Yes. I mean, let's just let's just frame it correctly. This card is an uncounterable disenchant in green. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's functionally what it is. It destroys artifact. I, I should say super disenchant because it can destroy a <laughs> non-basic land, which might be its one of its great strengths. Right. It's oh like, yeah. I don't want to downplay that. It's. I guess it's. It's sort of like a super vindicate almost. Really. <laughs> kind of what. Right. I mean, it's it vindicate. Is it does vindicate destroy planeswalkers? It does, doesn't it? It does. It's just target yeah. permanent. So that was really a desert twister. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so this is super disenchant for two mana. So it's like, if this had just destroyed artifacts and enchantments, then we'd be saying. Well, it's obviously better than naturalize because it's uncounterable. Mm. It's also a land. Um, it, it does have the downside of not being green, which means that you know it's not as parable with force of vigor, right? Mm-hmm. That is ironically, yeah. <laughs> and there are other. I mean, there are other green pitch spells now, right? We talked about um, the one from Modern Horizons two, Endurance, mm-hmm. right? But we we talked in our set review and our year, rather our set review and our year in review. How endurance, grief, fury—they're all, all seeing play. So, the color of the spell matters. By the way, yeah. it also matters for things like monastery mentor, young pyromancer. I and mean, we talked about that ad nauseum as well. So there's there's always a, a set of trade-offs here. But functionally, this is a super disenchant that costs the same as it's a supernaturalized disenchant. I think that is not enough to make it better. 
as a general removal spell than nature's claim or force of it. So what you have to do then is interrogate the upside of uncounterability and or the fact that it can be situationally a mana source and or most importantly, I think where we're going to have to drill down is its function as non-basic land destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> agree on all fronts. There, That's, I think, the reality of how the card has been used in its first few weeks of exposure. The addition, the observational addition I have to what you said about the card types and its color and its overlapping then with other effects is that it being a land makes it kind of a split card in vintage from, as a mana source, <laughs> but... Kinda. <laughs> yeah, but its landness is not maximized in vintage, is what I would say. Other formats have things like Life from the Loam. Like if you look at the graveyard-based decks in other formats, like Modern maybe, or even Legacy, like Legacy Lands, that's a Life from the Loam deck. <laughs> right. It can really make yeah. use of the land type that this card has and get repeated use out of it and even make it into a, almost like a kind of a prison kind of piece in the long run. God. Vintage makes, out of was all the formats, super, makes sorry, very light super use. super fast bond loam deck? That, right? <laughs> Imagine this is just like a loam recurring. Like you get wasteland and this. <laughs> you can just... Yeah. <laughs> There's, it's not to say that that's impossible in vintage, but as you're observing, that's a niche effect. Like the very few cards in vintage really key off of land as a card type. Renin 6 comes to mind, right? This card plus Renin 6 has engine potential but renin six is at a, a low ebb in vintage right now it's just not well positioned and not being played that much i'm not saying zero i'm just saying it's it's not a dominant archetype and so where other formats could really abuse the land status of this card vintage is not at a good place to do that your observations about it lacking a color so it doesn't synergize with the other pitch spells are spot on i think these things all contribute to this card being inherently capped in terms of how common it's going to be now that doesn't mean that it won't see play in a number of decks or archetypes but it can't be it simply can't be a primary strategy i think in any of those instances i believe that going forward where we're going to see it is as incidental benefits in a handful of niche roles it's going to be like the fourth fifth or sixth disenchant effect in some of those decks Man. you know it's going to be uh Hey, my mana base can support having a green only land that's not basic, and so I'll 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 slide it in here. It's going to be that kind of role, you know. Deathrite Shaman decks, again, not making not abusing the landness of it, unless you're also a Ren and Six deck. But Deathrite Shaman decks are the sort of decks that can actually draw a Boseju in their opening hand, put it into play on turn one, and make use of green mana. That's one of the alternate roles of this card that I think is going to be kind of a requirement in some cases to get in the door. Ah, so the grindy Renin Six players are going to live this, lap this one up. <laughs> that was honestly, and I, I count myself in that that population. That was one of the things that excited me at first. Was gosh, I want to put two or three of these in a Renin Six deck and really, you know, just grind my value out here over the long game. <laughs> um, it, it turns out that's not that's not good enough. It's not a it's not a good place to be in vintage, and and that was uh, that was ambitious of me. And I genuinely that, think, though, that it probably is a staple for certain Sultai kind of configurations for the long term, either main or side. Okay. Is that because is that because of the configuration of mana in Vintage? It seems to me there's a lot of non-basics. 
or is it just too slow to be reacting to your opponent's mana supply while they're casting spells? That's right. It's definitely the latter. I mean, it, 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 when push comes to shove, uncounterable or not, as you observed, you're still casting a naturalize here, right? <laughs> and naturalize hasn't been playable in vintage for years. So that's, I think, the primary effect that you've got here. A naturalize is not good enough, no matter what it does, uncounterable though it may be. The And so what you've got to be in for here is the split card. I think that's the bottom line. You've got to be able to make use of both halves of the split card or really be in for uncounterable on the effect. And the, the intersection of those things is not that common in vintage. Yeah. And initial results of the card, I think, echo that. The, the most common appearance of the card in early leagues and challenges has been in Hogak. Oh, where wow. those decks, yeah. yeah, those decks can do both of the things I said. They can make use of green mana on turn one or turn two, and they can really be in for an extra disenchant in the late game, especially one that's uncounterable, right? Yeah. So Hogak hits all those bills, and Leovold decks definitely hit those bills too. Ironically, one of the places I've seen this crop up, it hasn't been doing very well though, is some some standstill lists too, because <laughs> the, funny. They're, the non-spellness has obvious synergy with standstill, yeah. which we didn't touch on, but should almost go without saying. I, I don't want to get too far into the... So two, there are two broad features of the card, or I should say um, conditions that underpin this card that, more precisely, that I think are worth highlighting. So the first is that to get maximal use out of this card, you're going to be in a deck that's deep in green, right? Mm -hmm. That's, you don't, you know, with certain, free spells that wasn't necessarily the case like you can play mental misstep and have no other blue spells right <laughs> and and people do <laughs> and fairy macabre and so on and so forth you didn't need to be playing black mm -hmm. um there's an upside to playing black fairy macabre. um but when so, so number one you have to be deep in green and that automatically limits a lot of the decks in vintage the breach decks the po decks i mean po could play this theoretically it has opals but it's probably not you're mm -hmm. you know it's going to be using repeal instead of this um, you know, so there's like, yes, the Hogak decks, the Bug decks, the, the Bug R decks, those are the decks that are deep in green. There's not really, is there, I don't think there's really a Xerox deck right now that's deep in green. The Xerox decks are pre yeah. pretty much like Breach and Doomsday, right? I guess Doomsday can occasionally have a green splash, but at most it's going to have like a Bayou or a Trop, probably. They're not, it's not going to be, you know, using, it's not going to be like bringing this card out of the sideboard, I don't think. Um. The, so so number one condition is you need to be deep in green to play this. That's not really true. Of, and, and even if you are deep in green, the Xerox decks don't have necessarily extra Moxen laying around. So they're still probably going to want to go like Nature's Claim or Shattering Spree over this, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The the naturalized problem writ large. Yes. You just don't want a, an X and C costing spell. Right. That's the first thing. The second thing is... I want to draw out how much Vintage has, for the past really 20 years, been anchored around unrestricted, highly powerful, and highly unique uh, non-basic lands. Principally, Bazaar of Baghdad and Mishra's Workshop. But there are, I mean, Urza's, Urza Saga, I guess, is not unique to Vintage. But, I mean, there have been a number of occasions in which non-basics really are kind of at the foundation of the format no matter how you mm -hmm. conceptualize it. And the boost that Bizarre Decks got with Force of Vigor and Force of Negation has been an interesting dynamic to see that play out. 
And there have been a lot of countervailing forces, principally really strong anti-artifact, I mean, anti-graveyard sp uh, spells, like um, like um, the artifact I'm thinking of that, that comes in and, and, and removes one of the the, art, uh, the graveyard. Soul Guide. Soul Guide, yeah, Lantern. Lantern, yeah. And, you know, a, a number of others, of course. But I think it's worth really thinking about how useful is this card in corralling bizarre decks in vintage given that I, I think you can that go question, Moxland this go yeah ahead. yeah i think that question is great because the, it can't um, be countered by force of force of negation right go ahead mm -hmm. the it, it has the challenge that many many anti-graveyard or anti-dredge type cards have had over the years which is it can't be your primary plan right this it destroying a bazaar in the way that you're describing i think must be the follow-up and in that sense we already have wasteland right, right? But you can and, play this on turn one um with mox well, land uncounterable well i know but that's why i'm making the wasteland comparison right any deck in my estimation any deck that is in the business of i want to destroy the bazaar has a primary plan that comes first wasteland. right it's a it's a ley line deck it's a ravenous trap deck. It's a soul guide lantern deck, right? There's there's your plan A to not get beaten by the first bizarre activation, and then there's your follow up plan. And this is firmly in the follow up plan camp. Um, <laughs> in that sense, it is inherently slower than most other follow up plans, right? Because the active follow up plans we have in vintage are wasteland, strip mine, and pithing needle. The needle costs half as much as this, and it's colorless. And the needle also happens to come off of Saga for free, right? And so, as a secondary plan. This can't even be as good as what we have already, by definition. I, I guess I was thinking, let me be a little more specific. So you go mm -hmm. land, mox, like fetch land, mox, pass. Your opponent goes bizarre. You know, yeah. you you can use this on your opponent's bizarre immediately without having, yeah. you know, to wait a turn. I guess you, you might proactively needle if you know your opponent's bizarre deck. We, we have a long history of... Um, two mana answers to bizarre based decks that are also, I think, superior to the strategy you're talking about. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Jailer, uh, Containment Priest, right? All yeah. of those are more proactive versions of what you're talking about. I I don't mean to say that what you're saying is un untenable, just that it's the, it's the follow-up plan. That's all. Got it. Like the, the draw, you can't keep the draw you're describing based solely on Baseju in the bizarre matchups, right? You can't. That's You're going to lose that game if that's your plan. So what that means is you had some other addition to Baseju in that hand, which I would call Plan A. You've got a trap, or you or you had a ley line, or or you I don't know something else. You you've got a a saga that is for Nile Spellbomb or or Soul Guide Lantern. You know, you've got an A plan to not die to whatever they put in the graveyard first, and this is your B plan. As a B plan, I think it's okay, and it's okay because it synergizes with certain things in the meta, in the meta game like Renin Six, like Standstill, right? It synergizes with those kind of decks. But those kind of decks are, are tier two or worse right now. And so I think the use case that you just described is is actually probably going to be secondary to other use cases. Don't get me wrong. I'll be happy to make that play when and if it comes up because it's fine and it's aggressive and it's faster than Wasteland and it puts your opponent in a box in terms of when they have to activate Baseju. So it has some benefits. It's just not the standard. I think. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that having been said, uh, Baseju and Wasteland have some synergy and go in the same decks, right? They're gonna, both going to be in Sultai. They're both going to be in those Renin Six decks. So you're going to see a fair amount of overlap in that scenario. 
But if I were in that scenario, I'd much rather have played something proactive on, on turn one with my one or two mana and then followed up that bazaar with a wasteland, right? Or a needle or something like it. Yeah, so uh, do you want to talk more about where this sits or do you want to just move to predictions? No, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about where this sits. Because I'm, like I said, Hogak has, has made some good use of this to start with. That's an example where, as I said, you can use the mana to cast things like Deathrite Shaman, which is great, or other spells, and or, uh, and Hogak, no, uh, well, you can't, you can't cast Hogak. You can cast spells that cast Hogak. And or you get the uncounter ability, which is, I think, spectacular, right? A, a common usage of this card is going to be as an addition to uh, Force of Vigor, as you observed earlier, and it has value in its uncounterability. And Hogak is the sort of deck that can afford to get to two mana because despite it being a low, relatively low land count, it's still the sort of deck that has to get to two in a lot of cases. And um, I also think that the Ren and Six decks are going to be an ever-present kind of pre presence in the metagame, though maybe tier two or three in many cases like they are now. But this card just goes in those decks, no doubt. Because those decks these days are typically Deathrite decks, and so they can do the same thing. They can make use of the mana on the first turn, and or they can hold it in hand as a disenchant, or vindicate in the long run. It's Beyond so interesting that, to me that you compare this to Wasteland so forthrightly and directly. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's a land, but there seems to be, to me, something functionally different about basically casting it versus expending, you know, expending the Wasteland. I don't know. I guess the difference in my mind is that this does not slow your development yeah I, and i like that's a good point i'm glad you brought that up because i was alighting that when you made your observation before about the the anti-bizarre play yes absolutely as a wasteland this is um this is nice because you can play this on one off land mocks and then you can play a three drop on turn two exactly you can play your your um your luris well bad example you can get your luris <laughs> or your leovold um but but it's it's we got to be careful to point out that this does not function as mana disruption for your opponents when it's used as a wasteland in many in many matchups, right? In fact, even against Hogak, you're not denying them mana, you're just denying them the bazaar because they're going to go get a, a bayou and put it into play when you resolve this. And likewise against any most other decks wait, in the format wait, that are that aggressive. Again? They're not going to get a bayou. Well, they are. It's yeah. it's a It doesn't get a basic land. It gets a land with a basic land type. So it gets duels or triomes if you're in that business. Yeah, so your, your Hellgak opponent's going to get a Bayou out of this. Your Hollowvine opponent's going to get a Bayou or a Savannah out of this, right? It, it, if, if this is functioning as purely Wasteland, it, it, it is doing so well, in a narrow context or actually later on in the game once your opponent's out of lands to search for, okay. a la Ghost Quarter. All right, let's talk for a moment then about shops. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, obviously in Dredge, there's no Bayou to get. There's no other lands Granted. besides Wastelands and, and the <laughs> Uh, but but most of the bizarre decks now appear to be Hogak of I mean the um, the Hollowvine or Hogak decks of some of some type or sort. They're they're strongly Deathrite based decks. Yes. Um. Or they're yeah. Or, or they're just they're just non dredge bizarre decks right now. Most of them. Um. But shops shops they're not going to. This is just just this is a a, right. a card that just hits any of the lands out of the shop deck and there's nothing shops can do about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, you're, you're totally right. In terms of a mana denial strategy, this hits shops the hardest, especially since that matchup tends to come along with Collector Oof as a good addition to this. Yes. And from that standpoint, this pairs very well with Oof. And on our 2021 for the reasons in review, you said, we talked about how shops really surged in the fourth quarter. 
2021. Yeah. Uh, we saw that huge rise in shops, shop stacks with Nettle, Nettle yeah. Assist and stuff. Yeah, shops are not doing quite so well in Q1 lately, and especially not since Boseju has come out. Now, I don't know if that's an effect of Boseju because I haven't done the, I haven't mapped the <laughs> the progression, but lately shops are not doing very well. This might be part of it, or it might be due to other factors. You're completely right, though. This is a fantastic answer to shops. This basically destroys every permanent in that deck. And since the deck is usually about 97% permanence, <laughs> it basically destroys every card in that deck. And to, to different effects, right? You can go after the shop itself, etc. But I, I, did th I do think this gives decks that can run it additional upside against shops and will contribute to suppressing shops in the long run. Ironically, there's an interaction with a shop card that we're going to review later on that we'll have to point out, which is ironic. So, so I think how this overall... card kind of is kind of like a death knell for prison-based shop stacks, though, right? Like this hits Golos real hard. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it can hit anything out of that, and and they get those whatever the special land is is going to be destroyed. Caracas, yeah. This hits Caracas and Golos, so it hits. It gets Golos coming and going. Like, yeah. If you were to play with this card in any configuration that you could think of, how many? What's the median or average number of this card you're going to employ? Yeah, I would say the median is probably going to end up being one and a half. I think the over under is one point five. Wow. I think if you're a Renin six deck. That has death rights, so you can you can legitimately use the green mana on turn one for multiple spells in your deck. I think you can afford to run two. But if this is just disenchant number six in your deck, maybe it's in the sideboard. I think you only it's only a one of. What are the first four disenchants? Uh, most likely force of vigor, right? In almost any deck these days, the first four are force Don't, of vigor. I thought that the bug decks ran like. Abrupt Decay, and then the, uh, what's the other Abrupt Decay? Oh, yeah, sorry. I was thinking pure disenchants, pure quote-unquote disenchants. But you're right, the bug decks have way more than four disenchants. <laughs> um, uh, but I just mean, if it's if it's playing that role in your deck, then I think it's a one of an either main or side. If you're okay. bug or rug and you can make use of the mana, I think you're running two. And if the metagame shifts such that a two-mana disenchant is really valuable, it'll it'll go up to three in some instances, but I really think 1.5 is the over-under. Yeah. I, when I first saw this card, I was thinking it was going to be like a three of. I was thinking you were going to build so that you had hands where you would play one-on-one on one and cast your death right and still have one in your hand <laughs> to disenchant. Yes. Like, I, I wasn't briefly enamored with that. But the more I see and the more I talk to people... Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a pure splash card. So if you were advising our listeners, if they're thinking about picking this up for paper, how many should they pick up? Two or three. If you're super enamored with this card and you want to be the kind of person who um, who try to, tries to push the envelope, then I guess get three. Or if you're an EDH player, <laughs> get three. But um, yeah, I think you'll be fine with two. Well, um, let's before, I mean, we should, we should make some predictions, but can you give us a hint as to sort of what the level of play has been so far? There have been in recent top eights, one or two copies in multiple top eights as between mostly Hogak, as I said, with a smattering of, of bug, the Leovold style decks, 
and or there have been a couple of interesting performing Ren and Six decks lately. It's not it's not breaking the bank Ren and Six, but people are trying it. People are pushing it. There's multiple variants of rug control that some involve standstill and some don't. So I would argue that we're settling into a point where you can expect two of these or more in a top eight. And that comes down to how many bizarre decks make it. Because if Hogak is putting up two to three copies per top eight, then it goes up from there. The thing that's suppressing this card is it really has no place in the Tinker decks at the moment. And, you know, so the Tinker decks are all Esper or Grixis, and they're still strong players in the format and putting up dominant performances week over week. That's what I was suggesting towards the top. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so... And this, by the way, this card is a decent answer to a Tinker. You might not think it, but if you destroy that Citadel in response to their first cast, that hurts, you know? That's a that's yep. a fine answer to that Tinker strategy. So what is projecting forward, what do you think is going to be the... What's your prediction? I think there's a reasonable chance it could go up or down from where we're at. I think the, <laughs> medi- the median top eight probably has two of these for a while. But that's the thing is... We're getting, a, we're getting a lot of splash, flash performance by Bizarre decks right now, and it's not difficult for the Tinker decks to hate those Bizarre decks. How many do the Bizarre decks play, by the way? Just one or two. Okay. Yeah. Again, if we were talking about Loam decks in Vintage, then that number would probably go up to three or four, but we're not, and we won't ever, I don't think. <laughs> so it's difficult to predict, right? Metagame shifts could suppress the Hogak decks as they have before, you know, Hogak's never been dominant in vintage all of the last couple of years. It just has ebbs and flows. And so it's pretty difficult to predict, but I believe, I genuinely believe that if Hogak gets suppressed because the Tinker decks uh, shoot for a little harder, then you could see Boseju crack the top eights in, a, in the hands of a couple different decks, or you could just see it go to zero for a while. Uh, and that has everything to do with what kind of Xerox deck fills the void is it is it bug or is it just is it just guy right you know it's a different answer depending so hard to predict my my gut is to shoot for it's ironic you asked about how many copies do you play in a deck and i said one and a half that's actually my answer for how many i think there's going to be in a top eight for the foreseeable future so that's a lot i mean if you have two challenges every week yeah, you know, for the next for twelve weeks, then you're you're saying that what's what what one point five times um, times twenty four. Well, yeah, exactly thirty six. Then, yeah, I think I that's a reasonable estimate. I don't see any compelling reason to think that this card would be would fully fall out of the metagame because it goes into diverse archetypes, right? But as between Hogak and like a landstill based rug deck <laughs> like there's some breadth of archetypes there and it can show up in it can show up in a lot of different sideboards too we, we can't discount that right so like oath for example there's be no surprise if this was in an oath sideboard yeah um or main even since you can again use, you can <laughs> the, use the, mana. the orchard wars <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting so there's just the the ways that this can show up in a sideboard are numerous and so i i even if the primary use case becomes suppressed, <sighs> I think one and a half is still a reasonable estimate. Yeah. This card would have been bonkers in, in the mid-aughts. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. It's just, right? God. It's so, like, it would have been such a game changer. It's like, it, it's just so, it's so frustrating <laughs> to see this card arriving at exactly the wrong time. I know. It's like. 
You remember tapping out for a mind slaver? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh jeez. <clears throat> yeah, God. you're totally right. <sighs> um So I anyway, think I'm gonna, yeah, I think you're going to go I, I'm not so if, if 36 is the is the over under, I am inclined to go under just because I think we are seeing some decks like the four colored Ren and 6 standstill decks like those decks feel super greedy to me. I I can't imagine that deck continues to perform well. It I'd like it to. It's a fun deck. I think it's cool, but um it, so I think the number is going to go down actually. I think we're going to settle in closer to a a 1.5 or a 1. So I'm taking the under on 36 and going with 30. Well, I was planning to take the under on whatever you said. <laughs> now you've put me in a bit of a quandary. Um that's still staple status, mind you. Oh yeah, no question. All right. I'm going to go 24. Okay. I think that's reasonable. I think after this initial flurry of excitement, we well, will see it settle down a bit. Well, I think you have powerfully, through the force of reason, <laughs> persuaded me that this is... Th- I thought this would have a higher utility value against Bizarre decks, and I think you have persuaded me that that was misguided given the availability of anti-Bizarre technology and tactics that already exist. And so I think... This is more of a niche tactic where it can be used rather than a broadly usable tactic that people will strive to use. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. If that distinction makes sense, it makes sense in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm following you, absolutely. All right, shall we move on? Yes. This card is dramatically different in just about every possible way. <laughs> we are talking about Gingataxius Progress tri- Tyrant. For the low, low cost of 5 UU, you get a legendary creature, Phyrexian Praetor. Whenever you cast an artifact, instant, or sorcery spell, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. This ability triggers only once each turn. Also, whenever an opponent casts an artifact, instant, or sorcery spell, counter that spell. This ability triggers only once each turn, and it is a 5-5. This card is not um, burning down any doors in Vintage. But I want to talk about why, because most sets these days were good for one or more big, juicy potential oath targets, right? And we, it behooves us to talk about why some of them are impactful, why some of them aren't, why most of them aren't. This card stands out because, to my eyes, as a long-term vintage player, the notion of copying my spells under the heading of artifact and instant or sorcery, that's, that's big time, right? Like a lot of spells in vintage fall under artifact instant sorcery and I want to copy them. But the limiter of once per turn cannot be overstated. That is an incredibly limiting effect. Similarly, uh, countering my opponent's spells because for the same reasons, artifact instant or sorceries, I want to counter those all day from my opponents. That hits such a breadth of the format, but only once per turn. And the combination of those things means it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to actually abuse this card, even if you're fortunate enough to get it into play. The notion of countering and copying an artifact, for example, most artifacts that see play in Vintage, the value of copying them is actually very small. And I don't say that because artifacts are bad. I just mean that they're so incremental in our format right now. Moxin, it's not worth paying seven mana to get a second copy of a Mox Sapphire, no matter how awesome that is. You know, Black Lotus is probably the pinnacle, but even if you if you think about our Tinker targets, right? Like Bolas's Citadel. Well, that's no help. <laughs> I don't want a second Bolas's Citadel, <laughs> right? And also, I'm not casting that, so it doesn't get the effect anyway. So 
the notion of getting a seven mana creature like this into play and then copying something is actually super tricky. The most likely outcome in my eyes is that you're going to have sandbagged some instant that for some reason was not cast pre-Gin Gataxias. And it's probably a free spell because you sunk seven mana into this if you cast it. So like you're going to get a second gush, a second force of vigor, a second force of will. Yeah. It's, it's just not that good. So Even so if you open it up, it's just not that good. Okay. So let's be clear about something. Copying can be good if it generates an extremely high level of value or if, and generally the value comes through recursion or if it's an unbound, it creates unbounded loops like Tidespout Tyrant mm-hmm. is not, I mean, it's functionally copying. It's not, it's not, it's, it's actually not functionally copying. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a mim, it's a prox, effectively, there we go. It's effectively <laughs> copying, not functional. Yes. And I mean, because you, you can tap the, Spell, you know, tap the artifact, replay it, tap it, replay it, tap it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it creates unbounded loops, which means that you get an immense amount of value. It's like splitting the atom for energy, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, and and so there are times where I think copying, there was a, oh man, there was a combination. I can't remember the name. It was like, no, it's Thopter Foundry and, and something of the meat. Remember? Sword of the Meek, yeah. Sword of the Meek. And it created this copy. But it wasn't just that you got a copy. It was that you gained life, and it did something else, and it, it did three things simultaneously. Right. It generated material on the board. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the cumulative effect of of that was sufficient to ju- justify the investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to be clear. Like, copying, if you can create unbounded loops, can be very powerful. Now... It strikes me that the second paragraph on this card is like very similar in its in its disruptive effect to kind of Iona. Remember, is mm-hmm. a is a yep. Um, so that should not be discounted. But I think the ultimate value of this is your is going to be decisively determined by the first paragraph. The second paragraph is is like additional benefit, but it's not the primary benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay. Which means that I agree the first... What if this had said, Kevin... What if this had said, whenever you cast an instant... Okay, an artifact, instant, or sorcery spell, create three copies of that spell. <laughs> um, Would that materially change your evaluation? No. Interesting. Not material. Would it, would it change your ultimate conclusion? That's what I'm asking. I believe predicting a half hour or more of conversation with you, the answer would be no. <laughs> okay. And All right. And it's because of the limitation, right? Because of the inherent cap on the thing. Yeah. We haven't gone through all the possibilities here, but part of the challenge, like, it, consider the effect that um, Bolas' Citadel has on vintage deck construction. There is, there are many times, it's not, the, it's not the majority, but there are many times when you have to make sacrifices in deck construction because you're a Bolas' Citadel deck. You can't have too many reactive effects in your deck because they effectively stop at the Citadel. You have to lower your land count a little bit, but you have to lower your land count because that stops the Citadel for the most part. And so you, it, you're limited, you're constrained. It's not bad, but you, you, you narrow your options. This card has a, a different but similar effect in that you, you have to consider the benefit that you're going to get out of copying things. If you just put this into play right now with a current, say, Grixis Tinker shell around it, you would have you'd be rife with things you can copy, but most of them stink. 
right? You copy your Moxon. Well, that wasn't worth it. You copy your Sensei's Divining Top. Like, that's plus one card, but that wasn't worth what I invested to get this card in play. You copy my Force of Will. That makes me better in Counter Wars. But again, not worth it. Like, everything can be copied, or many things can be copied, but it's all incremental tiny value right you'd have to have this thing in play for three four five turns to realize the investment value of it at which point you're completely antithetical to the nature of the deck right there's no deck in vintage save land still that wants to have anything in play for three four five turns right and so the the limiter of the once per turn i think is entirely at odds with how vintage decks are trying to abuse an effect like this yeah I, I think your analysis is correct. I'm just I'm just wondering if I were to push the limit of that, does does you does your does the cordon hold or is there is the dam burst? <laughs> it's like at what so, point do you get enough value that it actually offsets the yeah. the limitations that you've you've articulated? Or and it's uh, and mostly I agree, an, it, it's mostly an intellectual exercise, one one that we need not pursue further. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do acknowledge that there's a kind of a spectrum of deck construction at play, and so my premise of putting this into an existing deck is inherently flawed in that you wouldn't put this in an existing deck; you would modify your deck. So you're right about that, like. Current Grixis Tinker decks don't always run. I don't know what's a good example of a cantrip preordain, right? Yeah, this they this might card gets one or two. Yeah, this card gets way better with preordains, just simply, right? If you're if you don't have anything more splashy to do, a double preordain's nice. Yeah. Likewise, this card is bonkers with time walk, yeah. right? So there's some asymptotic elements to it too, where if you double up on this one thing, that may be worth the whole investment, right? Tinker, for example, well, is a great card to double. Because you can well, just go get fl- Key Vault. Yeah. <laughs> remember, there are also like things like Flash of Insight with Tidespout Tyrant. This could be they could copy that, get some value, mm. things out of the graveyard. But That's a good I don't point. think we need to. I don't look. There is a super abundance of oath potential oath targets. the The bar is exceptionally high. I think the card that kind of burst through the gates of oath cre- was um, was Gristlebrand. And oh, the yeah. funny thing is there are still people who sometimes don't play Gristlebrand. It's like oh, yeah. they want the Tudor one instead, you know, or the, I don't know. Yeah, I've but, seen... Yeah, there's still a small variety in Oath Creek. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. still very small. Right. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, like Bezeju, this is my concluding observation <laughs> on this card. Well, can we just get some new names, for God's sakes? Like, do we <laughs> have to keep repeating? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, well, this is a return to a return to things because you're combining multiple people here in multiple settings, but I, I'm with you. I take it that means you're going to zero on Jengataxi. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. All right, then let's talk about another card that we're not going to go zero on. This will be a recapitulation of our first card in a lot of ways. We're talking about Atawara Soaring City, the blue equivalent of Boseju. It is a legendary land. It taps for blue. The channel ability is 3U, notably 4 mana as a base. Return target artifact, creature, enchantment, or planeswalker to its owner's hand. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. So, it's unsummon, it hits artifact, creature, enchantment, or planeswalker. So, disenchant, creature, and planeswalker. What does this not hit? It doesn't hit lands. So, it's like a super unsummon. It's going to hit your Ragavan, it's going to hit your Renin Six, it's going to hit your uh, Narset. It's going to hit your Oath of Druids. Yeah. So it's incredibly flexible in that regard, but it's also incredibly expensive. Four mana is on the outside of what you're willing to cast, you know, pay retail for in Vintage. You're competing with Paradoxical Outcome, a game-ending spell there. 
So I think our discussion for Ottawara <laughs> is going to be meaningfully different than the one for Baseju because the impact on mana bases and its cost and its position in a game is, I would argue, dramatically different. Can I ask you just a, I have just a small curiosity about this? Mm-hmm. When you first saw this cycle, the lands, did you assume that they would come into play tapped? I did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I totally did. Yes, this is, from a design standpoint, this is definitely a departure. This is a power creep <laughs> in terms of design, no doubt. All right, proceed. <laughs> <laughs> so Sati- Curiosity satisfied. Yeah. yeah. So we need to talk about the, the ways in which an unsummon is different than a disenchant. <laughs> I think that's part of it, right? You're paying a lot for this, so you're not doing it on the first turn or probably even the first three turns, barring certain deck construction. And that means that this is almost certainly relegated to a late game role player. And my guess is it's going to be in two major camps. It's going to be one in a deck that needs to remove something to win, right? So you're, you're kind of chain of vapor role in, in Doomsday or your... Well, your force of vigor roll in, in dredge or something, but still, some, you need to bounce something in order to win, or you're playing it as a split card purely for value. You're <laughs> some kind of blue base deck that is putting this into play some of the time and tapping it for mana, or just keeping it in my hand because I don't need a third land, you know, late in the game. That kind of scenario. So you're just getting true split card value out of it. I don't think I don't. I think it's meaningfully different than Boseju in that regard because it's not your A, B, or C plan. In those decks, in any context, really, so you're it's just purely just extra a, value. So you're saying this is primarily used as just a blue mana source that can. Like, I, you know, I seem to remember people playing. Um, was it a borrow? There was like a yeah. There was a, a blue land that people would play that like you could return to your hand. Yep, that's a borrow. Like just yeah, it was just like randomly thrown into vintage decks as like a one off. <laughs> remember that? Uh, well, it, I don't. I didn't see that context you're talking about too much. But I do remember seeing it. It also showed up as a combo piece in the fast bond decks, like the Zeus bond decks. But yeah, that's that's a similar I'm kind of use case where you're just getting some incremental value. Yeah. F- oh, you're talking about older than I'm talking about. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It. But it's, yeah, you're right. That's a similar use case where if I just want to turn one of my lands into a card in my hand, I can do that. Right. And I'm not. I can't remember the specific context in which people wanted to include it in their deck but there were definitely <laughs> decks who like randomly had a borrow and well it has some value when well, you talk about cards like deck or thirst for knowledge you know? well i think there might have been this is really stretching my memory but i vaguely recall a strange blue creature that had a combo with a borrow i think that might have been the context in which people well, randomly used it back in the aughts i don't know what you're referring to I think lately that was, was a, uh, the crab deck right no 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 this is before that yeah yeah, this I think there was a context in which people is was a borrow also an island or no. not? Nope. Okay, I think there was a creature that had some weird trigger. Ugh, I just can't remember now, unfortunately. <laughs> now I think there was a weird creature that I remember seeing occasionally in the Star City Games Power Nine series that I think got some value out of a borrow, but I can't remember what it was. Maybe someone listening will remember and then can can tweet at us <laughs> and help help us remember. Yeah. But I, I, there was the, I think it was a Kamigawa block creature that was like maybe, yeah, I think it had sort of a Japanese surname. And um, hmm. you know what I think I'm thinking of? I think I'm thinking of a creature that you paid it an activated ability that involved returning land and generated like creature tokens or something. I think that's what it was. 
I can't place the one you're and, talking about. Anyway, it's that's really stretching my memory, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so can, you're what you're saying is this is basically a throw-in that I people so. might use for its upside. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I feel like this is only there as a an extra value land in the sort of deck that is willing to put this into play on turn one and cast a preordain with it. So that automatically rules out all of the decks that have gusher days, which are unfortunately a large number right now. It is definitely a standard, and its non-islandness, I agree, is a big drawback in that respect. Number two, it rules out any deck that is deep in a lot of colors and wants a small number of basics. You know, that this would be competing for a basic slot. Yes. I think that rules that out. You're disincentivized to try that trick in a three-color deck, or definitely not in a four-color deck. So it it basically rules out the the Deathrite Shaman deck. Yes. Um, I agree that there is some... Look, there's no doubt that bounce has value. An uncounterable bounce is even better. Mm-hmm. But four mana is a lot of mana. Now, <laughs> it I totally mean, is. Yeah. Ironically, you can... you can mitigate that cost in vintage today with legends, which we didn't talk about with Boseju. Yes. But you can mitigate it with cards like Ragavan, uh, Lavinia. You know, legends are played in vintage, so. But it's not reliable. No, it's definitely not reliable, and at best you can account on having one, right? <laughs> and so three. <laughs> Three is better, but it's still a fair stretch for a vintage Is Caracas a legendary card. land itself? Caracas is not legendary. Wait, yeah. Caracas is, but this... <laughs> no, this is... Hold on. This cards, These cards, though, don't say land. They say legendary creature. Oh, creatures. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your, your Caracas comment is... is um, it, it's not relevant to the activation of yeah. this card. I mean, this is a really interesting card for, I think, like formats like Commander or something like that. This is going to be... Mm-hmm. I think much more of a stretch in vintage, but I don't know. What's your prediction? My prediction is much less than Boseju. The <laughs> yeah. limitations that Given. you just, yeah, the limitations you just cited are strong limitations. Um, the kinds of decks that are two colors and, and want to cast a preordain on turn one tend to be days decks, as you observed. This card's garbage at that. The, the only other archetype that I can think of that is that might be a contender for long-term play is some kind of breach variant where addressing a problematic permanence is valuable in the pre-combo turn, right? Uh, I bounce your what, Soul Guide Lantern on your end step, and then I go off on my turn, that kind of thing. But limited to two colors, right? And most of the, the well, all the Tinker decks lately are basically three-color decks, and so they have a hard time with that. And also, there's just very little actual permanent-based tinker hate that's happening right now. There's some. Opposition Agent, a, a little bit of Grafdigger's Cage. And so there's, there's some relevant use. But the, those decks, when they want to bounce something, they tend to look at Brazen Borrower these days. And even that's rare. It's not a standard by any stretch. So I just think that this is super niche and has a place. It'll be in a couple of the venues that we just described, but it won't be common. You know, there's no there's no common appearance of just like straight red blue Delver these days. That's just not really a thing. And any Jeskai deck tends toward larger threats like your your Laylas or your um, Monastery Mentors, and tends away from Delvers anymore. Ragavan has really taken up the space of your one drop threat, and as such, doesn't play well with Otawara. We can't predict zero because. There have been a couple of other, there have been a couple top eights already for this card. Ironically, one of them is in the sort of deck that we're poo pooing right now. But 
you can tell from a deck design standpoint that it had to make some sacrifices. It's a straight blue red is it tempo deck that has Ragavan. And it does have one Ottawaro in the main, and it does have one Days and one Gun. So concessions were made <laughs> for that deck. But that deck also has three islands and one mountain, too. So it's um you know, it's firmly committed to basics. I don't think this is going to be a zero. And I wouldn't have predicted that even if I had already seen this deck, but I also don't think it's anywhere near a 30, right? I think this yeah. is, I think you're going to see one or two of these a month in top eights, you know, maybe two a month. And that's probably okay. it. Yeah. So what's your prediction? I'm going to go these with seen a, any? Have these seen any play so far? Yeah, just, just a little bit. Just there's one yeah. challenge top eight. I think there might be a second one that I missed, but um, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go on the conservative side and say, five uh, that's a very good um i'll take the under i'll go four okay you know it's ironic we don't have a vintage playable legendary blue one drop if we ever got a ragavan or death right equivalent that was just a single blue mana this format could explode <laughs> well it, you know what it reminds me of when you make a comment like that it reminds me of the the old like what if there was a one colorless and one blue uh, sorcery draw two cards or even better instant right I mean yeah. it's like uh, I remember Rich Shea theorizing about that a while a while ago it's like you, yeah if you had the blue knight's whisper it would be bananas um, there's a reason that there's no one drop in legendary that's great and vintage if there were it would be problematic I mean Ragavan and Deathrite Shaman are kind of like a, I mean look the, the, the two mana cycle was Dark Confidant Dreadhorde Arcanist, um, uh, one point Quirion Dryad was part of it, Young Pyromancer, and then um, I guess Containment Priest, right? It's like these amazing two drops. Or not Containment Priest, there was another one. Um, the one that, um, the Stoneforge Mystic, right? Yeah. What I'm saying is that there were these amazing cycle of two drops. I mean, it used to be, you know, back in the day that you were lucky to get a great three drop, like Ophidian, right? And then we got like Dark Confident, which was just an incredible card for like a five-year period <laughs> and then and then you know and then it was like anyway i don't i think it's asking too much to get great one drops frankly one drops are not meant to be great kevin don't ask for great one drops there's a problem so, if you get great one drops uh, we should not be completing that cycle <laughs> that is i i believe that is a truism as you've said so i, I want to address that up front out of my own curiosity, I just did a quick search on one mana, true one mana legendary creatures. And I, I haven't honed my search right now because Scryfall is showing me multiples of each. But let me give you a quick rundown because this won't take long. Hope of Giriper. Yep. Isamaru, is, Hound of which Kanda. We, which we heralded quite a bit. We, yep, the, that's right. Which we, we heralded and which we previewed. Yeah. Yep. And which has recently made a top eight in the hands of one Brian Kelly. Uh, number two, Isamaru. Hound of Kanda from the original. Which was bonkers Kamigawa. when it came out. Yep. Kithian, Hero of Akros. The flip Kithian that turns into uh, Gideon Battleforge requires you to attack with a number of creatures to flip it, so it doesn't see any play in most formats. Norin, the Wary. Uh, Commander All-Star, not applicable in any other non-niche or non-joke uh, format. Ovia, Parishi, Sage Lifecrafter. This is the mono green one, which for activations of Three and five mana respectively creates tokens. Pretty niche player. Uh, aforementioned Ragavan, multi-format all-star, banned in a couple of places. 
Reese the Redeemed, the, the Selesnia legend, which also pumps out tokens. Valentin, Dean of the Vein, the black MDFC that has a, a green legend on the other side, Lisette. The brand new Yoshimaru, ever faithful, new companion to Isamaru in more ways than one. Tomb left. Zabaz, the Glimmer Wasp, the, the Boros legendary insect that's colorless with Boros activations. And the last one is Zergo Bell Striker, the dash one, the 2-2 two -two that can't block creatures with power 2 or greater. The, the almost laughable comparison to Ragavan now. So some colors, like red, red has one, two, three one-drop legends. White has one, two, three, four one-drop legends. And green has two, black has one, and blue has zero. Which I think is quite appropriate, I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have blue one-drops that I've seen play, like the Sage of, it. what is that, Petir? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Curse Catcher. Oh, uh, yeah. We don't, need, we don't need something that's like Ragavan Power to one-drop in blue. Blue is already by far the best color. <laughs> There's a reason that they don't want to tempt fate by making something like that. <laughs> Completely agree. All right, so let's move on to one. This this card is is not seeing play in vintage, but I love this card, and I think it's a it's a it's a dark horse. Hidetsugu consumes all, which is a flip card. It's a flip saga. I'll start with the front one br, d chapter one. Destroy each non land permanent with mana value one or less. Chapter two. Exile all graveyards. And then chapter three, exile the saga and return it to the battlefield. It comes back as Vessel of the All-Consuming. A 3-3 Trampler. When Vessel of the All-Consuming deals damage, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Whenever Vessel of the All-Consuming deals damage to a player, if it has dealt 10 or more damage to that player, this turn, they lose the game. Most of that text is irrelevant. It comes back as a hill giant that grows if you hit them. Now, why am I talking about this card? Because I think this first chapter, depending on cost... And context is an incredibly vintage-relevant chapter. Destroy each non-land permanent with mana value one or less. That can have a big impact on a game. That kills your Moxin. That kills your Ragavan and your Death Rites. It kills your sense. Well, makes you activate your Sensei's Divining Top. It kills your um, what else? Your Soul Guide Lanterns. Some of the other cheap artifact um, uh, graveyard hate like Nile Spellbomb. I think that this effect has a place in Vintage, but three mana for that effect, you've got to be doing you got to be doing something real specific to make it happen. And the second chapter, Exile All Graveyards, also sees play in Vintage, but the notion of waiting till turn three for this at, at the at, on the optimistic side is also problematic for the reasons we talked about with Boseju destroying Bazaar on turn one even. I don't mean to say that everyone should be playing this card and, and everyone's sleeping on it. I mean to say that I think you should consider this card in the long run when when metagames are just right such that a lot of permanents are, sub, are susceptible to this. Maybe tokens become more common. And or uh, just the right kind of Grixis-style control deck becomes an option. Because I have played personally played a lot of Engineered Explosives in Vintage. And before that, Ratchet Bomb. And before that, Powder Keg. And this notion of hitting everything indiscriminately at one or below, I just know that sometimes that's the right thing to be doing in Vintage. <laughs> so what do you think? <sighs> well, you know, it, I feel like, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm just like too ancient to be able to sort of like fully focus the mind on the application of the card because the place my mind goes is just automatic comparison. And 
And all the comparison points that I have are not objective, neutral evaluations of the efficacy or utility of a card, <laughs> but they're deeply inflected with personal experience and sometimes like failure of a card. Yeah. So the card that this immediately reminds me of is the, first the mana cost is what I focus on, right? So the mana cost, <laughs> what? I, I didn't even I didn't even note the fact that 1BR is obviously one of my personal favorite mana costs. I, mean, I, I played <laughs> yes. a deck named 1BR in the yes, Vinted Super League. In the Vinted so Super League. I, I had completely elided that fact. So what's the Planeswalker that was 1BR? Remind Duretti. me that. that Duretti, yeah. I think Duretti to me was a big disappointment. And I think part of the reason Duretti was such a disappointment is because of the mana cost. It was just so awkward. Now, obviously, there are oscillations in metagame it is. that makes certain mana costs more likely and others more, I mean, not just more likely, but more um, readily usable. And I have serious reservations about this mana cost. Number one. Um, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's hard for me to get over that hurdle in, in terms of a, an evaluation. That isn't to say that, like, these chapters aren't useful. They are, right? Like, like... The fact that this is a recursive saga is really interesting to me. What do you mean about recursive? I'm sorry. The fact, so like, number one, I think the first ability is really, let me just go through the ability. So the first chapter to me is is potentially really powerful, but it's hard to harness effectively, right? That's the problem. Number two, the second chapter is actually incredibly powerful, but it's something you want to be able to pinpoint control the timing on, right? And the fact that that, that both of those things are out of your control, I think this makes a cha- makes it a chaotic card. Um, I can see why you would say that. Yeah. Yeah. And then for the last ability, I mean, I think that I think it's actually a decent creature, right? For what it is. Well, if the first two chapters have effectively disrupted your opponents, then getting a hill giant out of the deal is just gravy. It's a opinion. little better than a hill giant. Come on. Well, it, it yeah, you're right. It's a it's better than a hill giant, but. The fact of the matter is, is you're not going to play this card because it's a, a 3-3 with suspend, right? Yes. <laughs> you're never going to play a card like that in Vintage. It's completely unapplicable. The, the, if the card did something that you needed it to do inside of the first two chapters or both, then the 3-3 could be your path to just finishing the game. Um, and similar to our comments on Jingataxius, there's really no deck in Vintage right now that's trying to put a permanent into play and just ride that permanent to multiple different effects uh, you know multi multi-turn impact on the game uh you know ragavan notwithstanding that so this notion of doing that is is kind of antithetical to how vintage is right now you're looking for big splashy effects or things that are going to end the game in your your dominant decks right now to put it another way this is not a delver card yes right this is not a xerox card this is a multicolor, probably three color maybe four control deck card which is part of the reason why i'm attracted to it the this is the kind of card you're going to put into your three or four color death right deck next to ren and six and and with you know i don't know snapcaster mages or you know whatever your flexible removal suite du jour is and the fact that there's dissynergy with death right shaman at face value cannot be cannot be understated the the notion of destroying your own death right when you play this on your on turn three is problematic at best or the mocks you use to play it right because vintage puts so much downward pressure on on tempo that you're going to be incentivized to play this on turn two in the matchups where it's good and that's inherently problematic because it destroys basically every way you use to do that not barring I don't know, dark ritual which doesn't help <laughs> no <laughs> can you think of a clever way to get to accelerate this on turn two with a with a 
a vintage playable kind of card that's not disadvantaged? I can't think of one. No, I mean... You'd have to have some kind of two drop well, that wouldn't be destroyed by this, but then you can't play that on one without destroying something. Right. Yeah, I, there's probably some clever way, but uh, in terms of our readily available merchandise, uh, this is there's no way to accelerate yeah. this and not lose extra value. Yeah, this is a this is really a chaotic card. Yeah. <laughs> I think if there's one thing you can say about vintage, chaotic cards need not apply. Mm. The 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 necessity to be able to dictate terms and effects with with uh, utmost precision is the is one of the overriding imperatives. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Chaotic is not a term I that I had come up with when evaluating this, but I think it's actually pretty accurate. It's difficult to control where this is going to be right, and it's difficult to control the definition of chaos. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm totally with you. I'm I'm not predicting any more than zero play on this, by the way. I coming okay. in full full disclosure. <laughs> but I do think it's the sort of thing if if you are ever in the market for explosive um Explosives, engineered explosives. Uh, in the <laughs> your future. favorite card. <laughs> I, I love that card absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I would just say, don't ignore this in terms of how it would impact your deck because I, I genuinely think there are some matchups where this card's kind of cool. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Okay. March of Otherworldly Light. This card's fun. XW instant. As an additional cost to cast this spell, you may exile any number of white cards from your hand. Any number. This spell costs two less for each card exiled this way. Exile target, artifact, creature, or enchantment with mana value X or less. So let me summarize. X spell it hits artifact creatures or enchantments. So it's a disenchant plus swords to plowshares. It exiles them, but you have to match their <laughs> mana cost. Yeah. And you can reduce that cost by two for every white card you throw away in addition to casting them. So this is interesting, but I feel like there are already a number of X spells that either bounce or or sort of like wipe out in some way. Absolutely. That we have encountered over the last 10 years. <laughs> well, and not just the last 10 years, we've got very recently Prismatic Ending, which this is obviously competing directly with, and Prismatic Ending remind has a lot of advantages. Is. Remind me remind me and the 98% of our audience <laughs> what that is. <laughs> There's more than our audience are familiar with Prismatic Ending. Okay. I'm sure of it. Prismatic Ending is the XW sorcery that says you exile a non-land permanent, so oh. it's got a broader, um, broader targets than other worldly light. If its mana value is less than or equal to the number of colors spent to cast this spell, yeah. And because of the downward pressure on permanents in Vintage, Prismatic Ending usually trades on mana equally, meaning you can pay one to destroy a one or a zero. Like you can go one mana for one mana on Ragavan, for example. And it scales up pretty well because our decks tend to be three colors, but it has an inherent ceiling on five. You know, the Prismatic Ending will never destroy a uh, Bolasus Citadel, for example. So what if they had made this card um, just, okay, you, you have you have the white X is, is the main casting cost, but what if it said as an uh, alternative cost to cast this card, the spell, you may exile any number of white cards from your hand. Exile, uh, uh, that number equals X. In other words, if you pitch one white card with this, you get to destroy, or exile one artifact creature or enchantment. If you pitch two white <laughs> cards, you get two, you know, that's three yeah. for two. Yeah. Right? And then you could go, if you pitch three, then you could remove four, and so on. What if they had made that card? That. Uh 
I think that card would be considerably better than this. And but would, it would it be, be better than Force of Vigor? Probably not. <laughs> no, not better than Force of Vigor, but it would be played in a similar amount. Not, yeah. not similar. It would be played less because white is less good right now. But it would make single-handedly make white a lot better in vintage. <laughs> yes. The card you're talking. Um, inherently, it has an inherent ceiling on how it, how much it can be. That card could be compared to um, Force of Vigor because white is not in the bizarre decks. Yes. Yeah, you know, with some tiny exceptions in the Hollow Vine, like Lavinia, and but, like Chancellor of the Annex. Occasionally. Yeah, uh, but that card just wouldn't go in the Bizarre decks the way Force of Vigor does. So it would be it would be sparsely used by comparison. But it, that card would immediately go in any other you know, deck that's trying to run white to a significant degree. It would be awesome in Jeskai, and it would probably spawn a new wave of Breach decks. Jeskai Breach decks would be my guess. But anyway, we're not talking about that card. We're talking about this one. This card is inherently flawed in that it always fundamentally trades down in mana unless you exile extra cards. Yeah. Meaning if you pay one, you can hit a it's zero. It's the worst of if both If you pay two, worlds. you can hit a one. Yeah. If it was one or the other, it would be a better card. Because <laughs> it would be it would be honest, right? It would be a forthright and honest. Instead of pretend, it's like pretending to be one thing or another thing when it's really not either of them. It's, <laughs> it's a combo. It's the worst hybrid of both. That's it's really like, funny. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it excites you by saying, "Oh, oh, as additional cost to cast, you may exile." Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> as a as an eternal player, we're conditioned by that phrase, right? It gets better and better and better yeah. until the end when it says it costs the- two less. Oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's like if it could just be honest. If it'd be just like, okay, white X wipe. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> or an alternative, right? Or an alternative additional. Anyway, it's just it does yeah. not what it's yeah. not what you. Um, that having been said, this card has already made at least one top eight. Wow. It, yeah. It Color was a one surprised. of, yeah, it was a one of in a, I think this is a Jeskai deck. Let me pull it up here to refresh myself. What would you be playing this over in Jeskai? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's a Jeskai Xerox deck, a Ragavan Lavinia deck that had Ethereal Forger, another personal favorite of mine. Remind and me it, what that does again. <laughs> that's the precursor to... <laughs> That's the combination of Murktide Regent and Dreadhorn Arcanist. It's oh the God. Sky Whale, the Elemental Whale. Oh, the one what's with it Del- called again, you said? Ethereal Forager. We reviewed it. We talked about it. And it, it's the one where you exile cards, and then when you attack, you can return one of the cards you exiled. Oh, the, it's a blue card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Anyway, so this deck has one of copy of uh, March of Otherworldly Light in the main and uh, honestly, to be perfectly honest, my guess is this person was just kind of testing it and experimenting with it because they also have one prismatic ending and they also have one swords to plowshares. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a, you know, they've got the royal sampler of, of white <laughs> removal here. Um, Do they have a fragmentized just for the full? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Let me the see. Full no, effect? Okay. no, no, no fragmentized. That would be pretty humorous. Do they have a mystical though. tutor? The, the quad laser. I hope- do they have a mystical tutor? I hope so. They do have a mystical tutor, okay. and they have um, ethereal forager, which means you know you get the <laughs> quad laser. You get back whichever one you've got. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is inside of a couple of weeks here, this card's not showing up very much, and I think for good reason. It it purports to be a very flexible and good thing, which might be right in vintage, but in practice, in practice, two things: you're punished because you're always trading down on mana, which is inherently bad in magic but it's extra bad in eternal where there's a lot of pressure on tempo so like if your opponent goes um volcanic island ragavan go and you have a land a hand that has just a land in it you can't otherworldly light that um that ragavan without pitching cards and so you're just inherently behind the eight ball whereas 
swords or prismatic and can trade one for one on mana with a one drop and so that's a limiter and the other thing is too it's just even if the pitch condition were better in like the hypothetical you set up we don't play decks with a high density of white cards right now you're, you're gonna have to in order to really pitch cast this thing for value you're gonna have to ramp up the quantity of white cards that you play in your deck right, right. now and that's basically a new deck in vintage there's aside from white well, Eldrazi white or, or hate, you know, what, the yeah, white hate bears. bears decks yeah those decks could make use of such a card, but they've really fallen out of favor. And and also those decks don't they don't tend to be, you know, interested in spending card advantage to remove things. Right. Those decks already have they the superior They need all permanence. the pressure they can apply. Right. They need, yeah, they, they need the stacks effects and they need the I mean, efficiency of removal. I suppose sometimes there's like a, a superfluous uh folia in hand, you know, but but that doesn't help part, you that much, right? No. Like removing so, someone else's two or three drop is not their priority. So let's let's wind up the conversation on this card. We have to go non-zero because it's already put up one challenge topic. <laughs> okay. But but honestly, I I like this one even less than say Ottawara. Like yeah, I, I'm gonna go. I don't know two. <laughs> I'm gonna say there's gonna be one more uh, maybe. I'll go one. I'm comfortable <laughs> saying that, that, that we've maxed out on this. I will say for the upside of, of you know our audience can at least appreciate our completeness uh, you know <laughs> that we that we covered this card and left no stone unturned. <laughs> well, one of our common themes of our set reviews is that we sometimes just review cards that are interesting. Okay. Or or maybe historically relevant. On that front, let's talk about containment construct. It's an artifact creature for two construct. Whenever you discard a card, you may exile that card from your graveyard. If you do, you may play that card this turn, and it is a 2-1. Uh, Keen-eyed listeners may recount that most of the words on this card overlap with one conspiracy theorist, a card that I brought in as an honorable mention from our Strixhaven review, I think it was Strixhaven, and said that I really liked this card and thought it was really cool. This card is just a less restrictive, more powerful, easier to cast conspiracy theorist, which is neat but also kind of bums me out like <laughs> i i had this dark horse card that i wanted to see make an appearance in the long run and they just print just a out. better version right off the bat it, which yeah, this is kind of funny so I this card this, this card is an inc- incredibly powerful potential uh, engine card like the yeah. car, number amount of card advantage you can generate out of this especially with bizarre is just off the hook well um the mana cost is inherently in the playable range. Let's stip- stipulate to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think the big... Tr- so it seems to me that this card is designed with some sort of combinations, probably, and interactions in mind. And obviously, I don't know what those are, because I do not pay... I did not look at the rest of the set closely, and I did not <laughs> study the block <laughs> they may have been designing this for. Um, but the the key to this is that you need to have a discard outlet. Yes. And there are some obvious discard outlets in in the vintage format. I don't think you can reasonably improve upon bizarre decks as are currently constituted. So I'm not sure if this is going to go into one of those. <laughs> uh, you're probably looking for something that is um, some recursive or iterable discard outlet, like a Riddlesmith. Maybe something better. You know, something of the sort of a Riddlesmith, but better. Right? Like I'm, I'm with you. Yep. You know, like. But but you need something. I don't think careful study is quite good enough either in that regard, you know, because you need yeah. something where you can get like, you can really over time create some advantage by, you know, getting discarding a card and then 
being able to immediately reuse that card and not also have to rely on the graveyard um, yeah. in the long term. You know, like you might have to with, oh, I don't know, um, the, the virus deck. Remember that deck? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep cut. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, the... No, I see what you mean though. You're getting you were getting recursive with, longer with term values. Yeah, and, with servitors um, coming back repeatedly. With um uh, artificer's intuition. Yeah. And scald clamp, etc. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. The your comment about the current bizarre decks kind of being maximized is absolutely true, but at the same time, this card incentivizes a different play pattern from the I'm current saying. bizarre decks. Yeah, like you're incentivized to fill your deck with cards that you intend to cast yes. for one. Usually cheap cards, right? Cards that synergize either in volume or in interaction, such that the bazaar is effectively just locating the next two cards for you, which is how the the most of the current bazaar decks work. Except those cards tend to come back from the graveyard. This one is just they're going to go from your hand onto the stack with this in play, and so you're incentivized to use artifact based zero and one drops or cards that are otherwise free to cast. And there hasn't been a deck that did that and wasn't an outcome deck in vintage for a long time. Uh, KCI notwithstanding, there actually was a top eight by KCI lately. Um, so maybe, and, and Bazaar and KCI just are oil and water. KCI is a, is a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a critical mass deck, right? If, if you mold a four on KCI, you're probably not going to win. The, um, this is the kind of card that is looking for interactions. As you said, you called out uh, careful study. Faithless looting falls into that category. If you're going a little slower, you might be looking at um, your Dak Fadens or your JVPs. There you right? go. JVP and Dak Faden yeah. are uh, on a better order than Riddlesmith. Yes. <laughs> Riddlesmith is good, though. Riddlesmith synergizes quite well with the, the, the high volume of cheap artifacts, right? There have Justin's done some, that is Justin Gennari has done some, some great work with Riddlesmith and uh, Matt Murray before him, right? So Riddlesmith has its place and it synergizes with the kind of card you need here. But the bottom line is this kind of engine is really difficult to put together in Vintage because it's inherently like an onboard combo engine and it's inherently easy to disrupt, right? If you put this into play and have a bizarre in play, your opponent has a window where they can prevent you from getting any value out of this. If you tap bizarre with this in play and this gets plowed in response, then this had generated no value. You just spent the mana and got nothing. The So that's inherently limiting. It's not like an engine card like... Um, underworld breach where you get to recoup a lot of value instantly and and your opponent can't stop you from at least getting one card worth of value anyway so i think those are part of the reasons why cards like this tend not to play in vintage and some of the other avenues that you could take this deck through remind me of the the blue red deck that you were briefly enamored with with the blue red legend that had a similar um effect to this what was her name eruth no, you remember you remember Aruth. It, it wasn't Aruth. It was an, it was um a different blue red. It was the um it wasn't Aruth. I thought Aruth was the one where when you discarded you drew that many. Yes, that's the card, but it's not Aruth. That's not. Oh the name no, of you're it. right. You're right. Aruth is a different blue red legend that has a different effect. What was the name of that woman? Um, it's not Jorian. That was another blue red creature. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's funny. I uh, um. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, when we reviewed it, you were you were a little excited about it, and you actually put together a deck and tried to play it in one of the events, didn't you? Yes, you played, I really did. You play that in a challenge? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, it, this reminds me of that in that if you want to try to be looting on subsequent turns to generate value over time, then you can try that, but it's inherently limiting 
and requires a, a strong commitment to that looting kind of engine for difficult, I would say, difficult payback. And that was your experience with that deck, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. But that deck, that deck was, I mean, yes, you got, but it was also that I used it as a big finisher. You know, like it would get like the 10 power very... <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. It had po- additional power equal to the number of instants or something in your graveyard. Yeah. Got to find the name of that creature. Just search blue-red <laughs> creatures. That is think... precisely what I'm doing. The answer is Riel the Everwide. There you go, Rael. Yes. Okay. Anyway, yeah. So, and, and while this containment construct is less limiting than a Riel or even an Aerith, they because of the mana cost and because it's cheaper and you can be more aggressive with it, I think the conclusion is still the same. The It is very difficult to make a critical mass deck via Bazaar with this because it's fragile and has the same kind of limitations that KCI does. And it's very difficult to make a longer term repeated value engine a la Riel because you're, you have to overcommit to the deck construction limitations and it's easy to break up for, not little, for, for relatively little benefit too. You don't get a lot out of it. And so for that reason, I'm predicting zero here on Containment Construct, as cool as I think that card is. Are you as well? Yes, unfortunately. I mean, I just think that the the, the first five words, the six, sorry, first, yeah, five words on the card are the problem. <laughs> Whenever you discard a card. <laughs> I mean, if, You're right. Inherently if, limiting. Yeah, I mean, there, it's not to say that there aren't a lot of cards to discard, but it's like, you know, if you're... <sighs> There just aren't enough. When was the last time JVP saw a lot of play? You know. Oh so. yeah, JVP is way on the outs these days. There you go. All right, let's move on. We're up to our third member of the cycle, channel, <laughs> the channel land cycle, and the only of the the remaining of the the five we will discuss. That is Takanuma Abandoned Mire. This is the black card. Channel three B, mill three cards, then return a creature or planeswalker card from your graveyard to your hand. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature. So four mana again. This time you mill and return a creature or a planeswalker. I would I enjoy talking about this card in just in context in contrast to the others, and I would not have predicted any play were it not for our friend Brian Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> Be, because if we did not have results for this, I would have said straight up zero and not been and not had any hesitation about it. <laughs> Except that Brian Kelly, much to his credit, had one of these in his second place challenge deck from last weekend. Oh my god. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we are compelled to, <laughs> we are compelled to predict at least one. And, you know, unless Brian goes on a tear with this multicolor monstrosity that he's brought to bear here, which I definitely would not put past him. It is definitely within his wheelhouse to do so. I am not planning on predicting more than one for this card. Uh, this is the sort of card that I believe Brian personally has made a top eight with despite this card (laughs) is how I would put it. He legitimately, let's put it, let's, let's make one thing clear. He legitimately has spells he can cast with this card. If it's in his opening hand, he has many spells he can cast. He's got Dark Confidant times two, Divining Witch, Hope of Giripur, Valky, God of Lies, inexplicably. He's got Sensei's Divining Top. He has Doomsday, like, He's got spells he can cast with this. Demonic yeah. Consultation. It, this is He is playing arguably one of the heaviest non-straight combo black decks in, in recent memory in Vintage. You know? Yeah. He's got more black spells that he's planning to cast. It isn't a, just a pure Doomsday shell than, than, well, most other decks. And so his Takanuma is not that bad. And I will also add that in addition, he has some legends 
He's got Hope of Girapur. He's got Valky. So he can reduce the cost occasionally. He also has some combos in Thassa's Oracle and Consult. He has some combos that rely on creatures, and therefore he can get buyback in, in longer drawn-out games. He can get buyback of combo elements using Takanuma. What does that all add up to? I think he won despite having this card in his deck. <laughs> but if there is any player in the history of Magic, and Vintage in particular, that has won despite having certain cards in their deck, Brian Kelly is number one on that list, in my opinion. All right. All right, so <laughs> let's uh, let's let's try it. Let's try and do this in a structured manner. Okay, uh-huh. so we can begin by stipulating that this is a potential throw-in black mana source with all the constraints that we mentioned for the preceding one. Right. That agreed. Number one, uh, you need to be playing black. Number two, you want you do not want this over. You you do not need a dual land or a um, basic land in this spot, right? So you have the flexibility to be able to run a non-basic land that produces only black. (laughs) And it isn't like Urborg that can generate black more broadly. Yeah. Um, So that already narrows the possible range of applications or insertions. Very Um, much so. The thing that trips me up the most about this card is the phrase, mill three cards. (laughs) Because what you're saying is number one that you want to you want to put cards into your graveyard, and while that's that, that's it's an overstatement to say vintage decks don't want to put cards in their graveyard. They absolutely want to put cards in their graveyard, but they generally want to put gra- cards in their graveyard by casting spells, <laughs> not by milling cards off the top of their deck. Especially, you know, the higher the power of the deck, the more restricted cards you have, the the more, the less likely you are to want to like put cards into your graveyard from the top of your library, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So continuing that that line of thought, not only do you do you need to be comfortable with binning the top three cards, which I am not comfortable with, and you know, like randomly, like th- th- that's the <laughs> that's the upside of like DAC, right? Is that you don't have to bin the top three two cards. You get to actually select. <laughs> There's no selection involved here. It's just bin. <laughs> right, right. Well, the selection comes on what you get back, of course. But yes, still okay. So that leads to the final point, which is that you need to have. It's the old. What was it? The um, strategic planning problem. Uh, you need to have, or it's. I guess thirst for knowledge is a better example. In order to maximize the value, you have to have a certain density of artifacts. And this is yeah. even worse in this case because in thirst for knowledge, you could draw three non-artifacts, but you're holding that one artifact in hand. You know that you can now yeah. discard. Yeah. This means that in order to get the value out of it, you have to have a creature and or a planeswalker in the top three cards of your deck without <laughs> the benefit of necessarily manipulating it. <laughs> yeah. Which means mathematically, you probably need somewhere in the range of like 18 to 22 art- creatures and or planeswalkers. No, the numbers, no, there's no I way the number is quite that high. I, I but. Know. To your point, though, you have to have a certain threshold because Probably. otherwise you're not getting any selection, right? If the yes. number's low, then you're going to mill one creature and you're going to get that one back. And with a deck like the one uh, Brian has constructed here with seven different creatures, the odds of that one being the one you want well, is reduced greatly. So here's the problem further. It's not simply about having a minimal number of creatures and or planeswalkers to be able to, to virtually guarantee that this effect is going to actually have the upside. 
Mm-hmm. It's also about the fact that there's some danger in milling other good cards. Like if you're looking for that one out and and it's it's like an instant or a sorcery or an artifact, well, what now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I am incentivized so, to continue commenting on Brian's deck here because well, well, he has me, some clever deck building things. But uh, let me ask you but something. This is not the quickly. standard. So you said there's seven creatures in his deck. How many planeswalkers? There are seven different creatures. The total of ten. Okay. How many? There planes are zero planeswalkers. Wow. So he has ten. He has he has ten hits for this card. Okay. In total. Yeah. Wow. All right. But for the sake of argument in Brian's deck and to give him credit, he is a clever deck builder. He has built or, multiple interactions did. with Takanuma. He has Doomsday, so he's got a Doomsday line where he stacks Takanuma on top, <laughs> mills the next three cards, which includes a Thassa's Oracle, and and then casts the Oracle to win nice. with only one card in library. So there's a six-mana Doomsday line here that includes okay. Takanuma. And that's an uncounterable way to start the Doomsday line, by the way. That's pretty funny. It It is. It is an uncounterable way to start that line, and the only spell that is involved at that point is the Oracle itself, so it's it passes up on... And if Fluster he has a Storm cavern, stuff. then he can bust it through. <laughs> yeah, he's not, he doesn't have cavern in the main here. Does he have one in the side? No, he doesn't have cavern here. Okay. Um, The other inter- interesting interaction he has here is Gifts Ungiven, so it's a pretty old-school approach, but he can Gifts for the, the Thoracle combo, and thanks to Takanuma, he can guarantee it, because he Wait can go... What? I'm sorry. I made a. I just want to clarify something because I may have misled people. Hmm. Um, you don't need to mill a creature or a planeswalker as long as you have one in your graveyard. No, like, you don't. Yeah. I I took your observations to yes. be if if your graveyard doesn't already have a good target, that's what I was the mill saying, three is wanted, the random approach. Yes. Yeah. I just didn't want to mislead anyone. <laughs> so <laughs> that's absolutely true. This deck, for example, and many that could be constructed in a similar fashion, could definitely find themselves in a mid-game scenario where they've got Takanuma in hand and no creatures in the graveyard, right? Completely reasonable to get yourself into that scenario, at which point all your comments about the next random three being good enough are applicable. I have to say, Brian has been a... I mean, he's been an innovator in many, many respects, but he's really pushed the boundaries on Planeswalkers. I mean... When I think of that green planeswalker that generates wolf tokens, I think of Brian Kelly. Oh yeah, right? oh yeah. Uh, what was that creature called? A, uh, that's Garrick, um, the the cursed Garrick. I uh, can't remember the, the proper title. Uh, anyway, so I'm just I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I would be more surprised to see Br- Brian playing a deck with seven creatures instead of seven planeswalkers. <laughs> so I'm surprised. <laughs> the ratio is really that's surprising funny. to me. Yeah, and and his Arlen Cord technology in Oath, for yes. example. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. It is. I do find it legitimately surprising that he doesn't have Planeswalkers in here. But it's worth noting this deck is purely blue black, and that so? is well. I <laughs> you know, have Jace, just, Jace Prince Prodigy. You've got I know, Lavinia. I know. Don't get me wrong. The I mean, not Lavinia. Um, the measure that you started black. off with about where this might fit as a value card in your mana base, I think. Another way to articulate that is if you're the sort of deck who can support a basic swamp, then Takanuma is a candidate, right? There's a lot of decks in Vintage today that have black and could not support a basic swamp, right? Due to their deck construction. The the Sultai decks, the debug decks lately are primarily blue-green decks with a little bit of black in them. And they will frequently go through a whole... They could, they could possibly go through a whole Deathrite game without activating the, the black ability on Deathrite, for example. Um, so, the, But to your point... Because Vintage does, has very few purely blue-black decks right now, the only decks that tend to be blue-black are Doomsday. 
And this card, Takanuma, despite the fact that Brian Kelly has built a one copy of a Doomsday into this deck, it's not really a Doomsday card. It's not efficient. It's not part of the standard lines. It doesn't speed up Doomsday in any way. If anything, it slows it down, which Brian has done here, and but could potentially give you some resiliency in the in the Doomsday world. But I would be very surprised to see, to see Discover N or anyone else Brian, like that put Takanuma into their deck anytime soon. If Brian is listening to this, I think he's thinking, challenge accepted, Kevin. You've <laughs> hey, thrown look. down the gauntlet. <laughs> <laughs> Brian has made a career out of building interesting and off the off the uh, the beaten path decks and including lots of unusual things. He's done it again here in, in multiple ways. He's got Valky, God of Lies. You know, that's not a vintage card, but he's made it work. The, the bottom line, though, is we can't get too wrapped around the axle on Brian's list, even though it's quite clever. The, the standard use case for Takanuma is very rare in vintage. Rarer, rarer still than Ottawaro, and Ottawaro is a, a blue card for Pete's sake. The the prediction I would have for Takanuma is similar to your prediction for March of Otherworldly Light. <laughs> I'm going to predict one because I don't think anyone else is really going to make it work. All right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go there too. All right, the rare and coveted tie in our predictions. All right, let's get to. We've got two more cards left here, and they share a lot in common. I don't want to review them side by side necessarily you, you but know, one is going to inform the other let me retract that let me restate that i'm going to go i'm going to take the over this time kevin i'm going to go fascinating three. i'm going to go three on that because i think i think is there may be enough like just the fact that you can get a planeswalker creature back i think may actually have enough value okay for, for out of a land so i'm going to go three you're talking about the pure um just the pure value use case i think the upside it might be better than the blue. interesting okay all right, well, I'm excited to see. So these next two creatures have a lot in common, a lot in common. Would you like to try and evaluate them side by side? Because I think it's kind of an interesting exercise. Yes. One of them is from Kamigawa Ninan Dynasty proper. One of them is from Kamigawa Commander. And that's part of the reason why we have two otherwise very similar cards in the same set. The first is Kappa Cannoneer. 5W, sorry, 5U, Artifact Creature Turtle Warrior which is awesome. It has Improvise, which if you recall is the ability that lets you tap artifacts to help pay for the spell. It has Ward 4, which is quite a high number. Whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on Kappa Cannoneer, and it can't be blocked this turn. It's a 4-4. Now of note, it doesn't say whenever another artifact enters the battlefield, which means it will see itself enter, meaning every time Barring strange circumstances, every time a Kappa Cannoneer comes in play, it's going to be a 4-4 with a plus one, plus one counter. It's going to be a 5-5. The comparison point, so try to lock that card in your mind. The comparison point is Patchwork Automaton. For a lowly two-mana artifact creature construct, it has Ward 2, half as much as the Cannoneer. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Patchwork Automaton, and this one is a 1-1. So what do these two things have in common? Ward the big one has four. The little one has two. They're both pretty useful numbers. They both grow with artifacts coming into play. But notably, the Cannoneer triggers on them entering. The Patchwork Automaton triggers on them being cast. So the potential outcomes are a little bit different. Like Urza's Saga will trigger the Cannoneer but not the Automaton because you don't cast that artifact. In fact, Urza's Saga will, in practice, put three counters on a Kappa Cannoneer. One for each construct it produces and one for the artifact you tutor up. 
Urza Saga will put no counters on a patchwork automaton. Conversely, if you cast an artifact and it gets countered, <laughs> you'll still get a crazy. counter on patchwork <laughs> automaton, but you won't get one on the cannoneer. So there's different scenarios. The improvised part of Kappa Cannoneer is noteworthy in how unuseful it is in vintage. And I say that because improvise you might think hey that's a very artifact centric thing it's really great helps you pay for this right yeah except most artifacts in vintage already tap for mana the only way improvise is good in vintage is if you have artifacts that don't tap for mana and the average vintage deck even the workshop ones have comparatively few of those if you're a workshop deck you can cap tap your other creatures to cast a cannoneer but what are you doing with your creatures if you're not attacking right you can tap your sphere of resistance or your thorn of amethyst if you're a non-workshop deck then you're really down to just sensei's divining top and when Justin played this Kappa Cannoneer in PO, he added um, Prophetic prophetic Prism, I think, or Pentad Prism. I don't remember which of the two. I think it was Prophetic Prism, yeah, to draw the card. He added Prophetic Prism to synergize with PO and with this card. It's actually hard to use it, improvise constructively in Vintage. Okay, anyway, I'm going to stop there and let me give you, let you give your thoughts. Well, I think what you just said was like almost overly ornate and complicated. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Fair enough. Um, remind just just I want to be clear on how ward works exactly. Can you just go through the steps? Yeah, ward is a triggered ability. So whenever the okay, creature sure. with ward becomes the target of a spell or an ability, then the trigger goes and the condition must be paid, whatever the cost is, or that spell or ability is countered. So got it. You got to pay two mana in the case so of the small one, four mana in case of the big. It's like a weak protection. It's a form of protection. Right? That's right. A it's, weak form of hexproof. Um. So I guess the first question I would ask is. How are we casting Kappa Cannoneer? <laughs> it's, I think, a very apt question. That was the reason I went so deep on Improvise, because the bottom line is, in order to cast Kappa Cannoneer, you're either paying six mana, or you're filling your deck with non-mana artifacts for which you can get incremental value by tapping them to cast this, turning them into Moxin. So your Sensei's Divining Tops and your Prophetic Prisms and your other smaller artifact creatures... Give me another one. You're, you're pithing needles, right? You're tapping other things to make them into Moxin for the purposes of paying six. Okay. Um, what do you see filigreeing these, these cards? Like, What do you see being used around them? The Patchwork Automaton goes directly into Workshop Aggro, and it has already become a staple in that deck. Wow. It's cheap. It's fast. It's hard it's, to remove. It's, it's, it doesn't it's a growing just creature. Die to, it's a gr- yeah. It's a gr- it's a it's an it's a query and dryad that doesn't just die to removal too because of War Two, right? Yeah. If you're properly pressuring your opponent, this dodges force of vigor, and we all know that's pretty valuable. And it's worth noting that Ward applies to spells and abilities, so this also dodges Dakfaden. And nice. We know there's a long history wow. of artifact creatures being played because specifically they dodge Dakfaden. This card is annoying, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Super annoying. Yeah, and it's going to attack as a as a two or a three probably the first time it attacks in most cases, if not more. The the thing I and like you could you could get two counters on this on turn one without oh, any yeah. difficulty, right? You go workshop this, play a mox, mox. There's one counter, play another two drop. There's two counters. Yeah, a, a revoker. Yeah, um, I mean, it's going to attack overseer. as a four or a five on turn two sometimes. I think the thing that is I like the most about the automaton mm-hmm. is that one of the trickiest, probably the most nuanced skill with workshops is sequencing and this card disrupts the 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 flexibility of choice a little bit because it's so strongly incentivizes you from playing it quickly but the thing i like about it in that regard is that it's most likely going to be the right play 
play this early. Now, of course, there are going to be times when you want to lead with a sphere, but it's sort of like the old Query and Dryad dilemma, right? Like, oh, yeah. you want to play that before you play Duress. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I really like this card. Ward is even more powerful than I assume. I um, agree. Reward Anything that rewards sequencing is inherently a good thing in my eyes as well. Um, so, Patchwork Automaton seems just really and it's again it also meshes with the recent i don't know if it's not now fair to call it recent the last the trend of the last five years to bend the art of to bend the mana curve low right oh, yeah. and it's instead of like the golem and trike era we're now in the steel <laughs> overseer arcbound ravenger you know like uh go low um what's the uh ballista um yeah god this card is so good with ballista and ravager <laughs> it's just kind of bananas actually yeah it's incredibly synergistic i agree and the the disruptive effect that it has on removal can't it's it's difficult to overstate that the because there's with all the downward pressure on mana across the format players have become a little i think used to conditioned to the fact that their force of vigor for example is going to be a two for one against aggro shops they're, when you're evaluating your matchup, you're just looking at your cards and you're being and you're thinking, oh, I've got this thing. I'll just I'll just play this Force of Vigor to get tempo against aggro shops and then get into the mid game with them. This card, um, it potentially sidesteps all of that. Think about the way this interacts with Ravager, because the um, the ward ability only triggers on your opponents. It's it's akin to hexproof in that regard, which means if your opponent if you play this and then Ravager on turn one and your opponent's staring at Force of Vigor in their hand. Yeah, they could get it onto the stack, but they're going to have to pay their whole second turn for it. And that's a big change in the tempo of a game against a deck like like Workshop Aggro, right? Where Force of Vigor would be accompanied by a Deathrite Shaman or a, you know, a Renin Six or a Tarmogoy for something on turn one or two. Now it takes that whole turn to do. And that is a that's just a big difference. And if your opponent taps out and you've got Automaton, you can have confidence in going deep on it. At least that turn. This card has already put up three top eights in this challenges. This is a big one. This is a big... Yeah. Cre- yeah. I think the thing that... The only reservation I have about this is how overall effective are workshop decks in general. Um, but they did really well last year. So I think there's a real high ceiling on this card. Is this card replacing Steel Overseer or are people still using Steel Overseer? I think Steel Overseer had already disappeared. Because of Nettles's? So- Nettles. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Nettlesist really took over that spot too, and it's worth noting that um, that this card plays incredibly well with Nettlesist, right? Remember how I said if your opponent tapped out, you can feel confident going deep. Well, sometimes your opponent is going to be at I don't know, they're going to be at twelve facing this, and you're going to play Nettlesist and put it on this in one turn and just kill them, <laughs> right? Because this thing could go from like. A somewhat innocuous three or four power to it gets one from the nettle cyst. Maybe you play one other spell and now it's getting plus seven and they're just dead. It, it's incredibly synergistic with nettle cyst in that regard. I consider this staple status for workshop aggro at this point. The deck has become even lower to the ground as you observed, you know, it, and that's been a progression over time, of course, but this typifies that. The decks that have made top eight in the last month have included Ginger Brute as a one of. Ginger Brute which speaks to just the incredible aggressive spin that this deck is taking now, where a 1-1 one, one for 1, because it has haste, is now an effective card. Now, a lot of that is down to the interaction with Nettlesist, mind. But still, this 
cart amplifies that interaction too. Well, I think the number is going to be high. Um, yeah. Our reviews cover generally a three-month period. What's the f- clip of shops making top eights these days? It's not that high. Um, I I don't have the f- I don't have the full stats in front of me, but we're looking at <clears throat> one or fewer per top eight. Okay. So. So I think the over under is 0.5 on aggro shops making top eight to begin with. Okay. But it's not going to be uncommon for there to. I mean, that's I'm not going to rule out a, a given top eight having month. two of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, jeez. Besides, I know it's tough. Um, I'm going to go 15. No, 15. I'm going to go 16. A very well-reasoned number. I think that, I think I w- I'm incentivized to take the under there because there is a little bit of a first actor's advantage with a card like this. It increases the aggression of an already aggressive deck, and it also adds a component in the ward that people aren't used to necessarily, and so you get some surprise advantage. But I think as people adjust to how the, the play patterns against this card, that it will become slightly less effective, which tells me that I think some of its early success will diminish over time. For example, people have gotten out of the habit of playing things like Hercules Recall, and we could see perhaps uh, a shift toward that slightly more often, which sidesteps this award and also punishes people for over-investing in a card like this. So... I, my summation is simply that I think this, this is the sort of card that will get slightly less effective as people get used to playing against it. So I'm going to take the under, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say twelve. Okay. Though that does still strike yeah. me as staple status for this card. I really do think it is. It's here yeah, to stay. I agree. This card is really powerful. I mean, this this ward mechanic is something else. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take it back then to the Kappa Cannoneer. So I know I can tell from your assessment and your questioning that you're much less excited about this cannoneer, and and I share that assessment. Um, Justin, as I said, made of a valiant effort. I think he did a League Five O with a cannoneer outcome list. Yeah, he did. There have been some appearances in the in challenges for this card, but what were the finishes? Let me see. In Po and Esper Tinker, there were two challenge appearances by this card but their finishes were let's see 25th place and 31st place yeah the card is just not burning down the doors i genuinely believe that improvise while it looks at the surface to be a vintage friendly mechanic is genuinely not good in vintage i i think it actually doesn't help and if you try to make it good you end up putting suboptimal cards in your deck and you get punished for it i think that justin's um 5-0 with this card in the leagues was um well, it's just yeah, aberrant, Barrett. You know? Yeah, those kind of things happen in leagues every once in a while. Fluky. Yeah. <laughs> Put a word I mean, to it, it Kevin. <laughs> well, the, the deck he was playing was a coveted jewel PO deck, which he likes to play, you know. So okay. it's a it's a workshop PO deck. And as such, it has kind of a high variance, right? It goes in fits and starts. Your draws can be either incredibly explosive and you go off on turn one, or you just get disrupted and can't cast your spells. Anyway, the the bottom line is I think this is a zero. I don't think this is actually a vintage card. And especially okay. not because we've got Patrick Automaton. Well, if you're going zero, then I'm going to go zero. So <laughs> Okay. And that's it. That brings us to the end of our Kamigawa Neon Dynasty set review. We have predicted a healthy amount of play for cards, mostly down to the land cycle, of course. We've got top predictions for Boseju, of course, but play predicted for Ottawaro and, excuse me, that's Ottawara. Got to get my vowels right. Ottawara. As well as um, Takanuma. 
as well as predicted play for March of Otherworldly Light and Patchwork Automaton. Otherwise, I mean, in summation, I, I think this set's actually pretty great for Vintage. These channel lands are awesome, and we got a couple yeah. of other neat role players. They're going to be around for a while, so. Yeah. Neato. Any other, any other closing thoughts, Steve? No, it's just good to get back in the swing of things. I'm excited for Paper Magic again, so looking forward to this being a, a return to whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tabletop. Return and to tabletop. we will try... Yeah, and on a related note, we will try to keep our audience up to speed on Eternal Weekend plans. And, well, anything that's announced there will be obviously a huge shockwave in the community. And I'm looking forward to learning something, whatever that might be. So with that, thank you for listening to episode 104 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other players can find us. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Vintage is not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>